My guest today on Mission Impact is Bobby Russell. Bobby is an operations executive who works with nonprofit organizations. She launched her own consulting practice in 2017 after working in a COO role for more than 10 years. Mission Impact is the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your podcast host and nonprofit strategic planning consultant. On this podcast, we explore how to make your organization more effective and innovative. We dig into how to build organizational cultures where your work in the world is aligned with how you work together as staff, board members, and volunteers. And all of this is for the purpose of creating greater mission impact. Bobby and I talked about how investing in operations, though perhaps not the most sexy thing in the world, does actually mean that you're boosting morale and you save your organization time in the long run. We talked about what helps staff thrive in a remote work environment and what organizations need to think about as they're thinking about whether they will be heading and how they will be heading back into the office. Bobby also noted that your organization's insurance and benefits providers can be partners in supporting your organization's human resource functions, especially if you're a small organization that doesn't have a dedicated human resource person. Welcome, Bobby. It's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm glad to be here today. So I like to start with the uh, question about kind of your motivation for the work that you do. So, so what drew you to your work? What motivates you? What would you describe as your why? I've worked in the nonprofit community for more than 20 years, and for a large chunk of that was running an organization. And about four years ago, I had the chance to do some consulting. And my when I think about the why for that, it's a mix of collaboration and independent work. That's a great fit for me. That's on the very tactical level. But also I get to be a part of many different teams and working with different clients. And it's such a, a learning exchange of getting to experience different cultures, different ways of operating the different kinds of work. And so in addition to the work that I do, the fulfillment I get from coaching and collaborating with somebody, doing direct HR support or helping with operations, I get that that fulfillment from other interactions and learning about different cultures and styles. Yeah, I really appreciate that that idea of a, a learning exchange because I, I definitely feel like that when I'm, I'm working with clients that it's a partnership and I may be walking them through a similar process that I've walked another group through, but their issues, their team, you know, the personalities, the issue that they're working on, what's going on inside the organization, all of that is new. So I'm always learning and and uh, I just appreciate that. It just keeps everything really interesting. It does. So as you mentioned, a lot of your work with organizations uh, revolves around uh, operations, which, you know, isn't always the most sexy or exciting thing or the thing that people (laughs) actually associate with nonprofit work. But it really is so critical for organizations in order to achieve their mission. What would you say are some of the benefits of actually investing some time on the organization's operations? Yeah, I think one of the biggest benefits is running your nonprofit like a business. And, and nonprofits are unique. We have, we're mission-focused and, and are working for the greater good. And investing in that infrastructure always save time, will save time later. So 
I like to share with clients, you know, that don't like to have too much process, too much structure, have a little bit. It, it's good for employee morale because people like to be able to refer to things, have a good sense of how things are done. It doesn't have to be a, a 95 page handbook, but some kind of guideline for how things work. So there's that investment for the organization and saving time and the investment in your team for retention purposes of giving them some kind of structure so they know what to expect and what they can look for in the future. For me, that's one of the biggest ones, the financial and human capital benefit. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned employee morale because I, I was working with an organization recently um, on strategic planning and and it was an organization that had you know started with one person and a founder who's just you know, very visionary and, and doesn't need a lot of structure or, uh, you know, she has all the processes because she built them all. And as she's built her team, there was this need to, to actually get clear about what each person was doing, get clear about, you know, what is the step-by-step for the, this process or that process. And, and I think, um, because it wasn't a need for her, she didn't necessarily see it, but once folks said, this is what we need, you know, they were able to identify like who in the team is actually good at this stuff and can get us where we need to go in terms of building those structures so that people kind of, you know, know where their lane is and how they can contribute. Yes. Even for those folks who like them, uh, who like the freer form kind of structure, you can have that in other ways in your work. But when it comes to how you structure positions and responsibilities and how people are responsible and accountable for their time, all of these different aspects, it it gives people a sense of, of some kind of structure and it, it is really helpful for morale. And um, a lot of your work really involves um, how organizations work with, as you're, with teams, with your people, recruiting, managing them, HR processes. And certainly with the pandemic, we're recording this right in May of 2021. So things are starting to shift perhaps, or people are starting to think about a shift uh, away from remote work. But a lot of organizations had to make that shift really quickly. They may not have had practices or policies around telecommuting or remote work. Where, where have you seen organizations do a good job of, of that and helped their team really thrive in that remote work environment? There are a couple of things. One of the biggest ones was understanding that each person was having a different experience in this pandemic from an emo- a personal emotional perspective and then their own home family situation, whatever that might be. And you started to see folks who were in a shared apartment and there was only one room with good internet and they were taking turns using that room to be on meetings and and then also, of course, families with kids and balancing all of that. So really understanding what people's limitations were and how can the organization still get done what they needed to get done while supporting whatever those limitations were. And then similar to what we were talking about with operational processes is coming up with some level of guideline, of guidelines for staff, because it didn't work from what I saw when organizations said, do the best that you can. People were looking for a little bit more than that. So it was, even if it was around hours or how they communicated about their schedule, but providing some kind of guidelines of what the organization is expecting during this time, what flexibility there is, when people should plan on using paid time off versus this is flexible and you can just balance out your schedule. So really providing those kinds of guidelines. And then a third thing is keeping up with the personal aspects that you don't get when you're over video or over phone and being intentional about making human connections. And with the pandemic, we also had a lot of 
unrest happening in the country along with that. And it, that also was impacting people. So making space to talk about those things or not talk about them if people didn't want to, but at least acknowledging that it was happening and people could be having experiences around those things and wanting to create open lines of communication. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, all, those differences uh, always have been there in terms of how different people were experiencing the workplace and their work and the team. Um, but certainly this past year has just amplified that in the same way that it's amplified so many other things as, as you were talking about. And um, yeah, I think, you know, uh, I've heard a lot of people talk about, well, you, you know, it's so hard to have the human connection or those those uh, kind of accidental, you bump into someone, uh, things that happened in naturally in offices when you're all there together. And, at the, and, and that's certainly true. And at the same time, I think there's something that this experience of having to work remotely kind of gives a gift to organizations when they can start to think about how to build that in more intentionally and for everyone, because I feel like maybe it happened for some people accidentally, just kind of serendipitously, but it may not have, it may not have actually been the experience for everybody in the office, but people kind of assumed that it was because everybody was together. That's a great point. Yes. And even in just thinking about some people really love the face-to-face interaction and like being on Zoom or some other type of video chat where other folks need a break from that. And seeing organizations give people the space for that, if you're not required to be on video, let people know, I'm going to take a break. I've had back-to-back videos all day. And just giving people space to do, to advocate for what works for them so they can be bringing their best. And that works for the individuals and for the organization. And as organizations think about kind of shifting back or shifting towards some new new version of working, uh, whether it's 100% remote or everybody back in the office or somewhere in between, what, what are you, how are you seeing organizations start to think about that transition? People are starting to talk about it now. There's a lot of information gathering And I'm hearing a lot of eyeing September is kind of the return to physical offices if they exist, even if it's in some sort of hybrid way. But gathering information from staff, what is your life going to look like? What is your comfort level? Without disclosing specifics, do you have health concerns about potentially returning to the office? All of these different factors of gathering the information. And then coming up with really clear guidelines. This is what we're expecting. This is when we'll be phasing things in. This is when we might resume travel. And just giving staff really clear guidelines about what could be coming and making sure there's good communication. There's also an aspect of not just preparing physically to come back to the office, but mental preparation from all of this time that we've been at home and in a different kind of space where some people have been sick and lost family members and friends and people have been through all types of experiences during this time and thinking of ways to make space for coming back together, coming up with maybe some mental health support system within the organization, making sure people are aware of what their benefits are related to that through insurance and other services. A lot of times insurance packages like life insurance and short-term disability have those employee assistance programs as well, and making sure employees know what's available to them, how they can get help, who they can talk to, and making it a safe place if people are having a challenge coming back and really struggling. And, and I mean, most nonprofits are relatively small and oftentimes don't necessarily have a dedicated HR person. How can, how can those small organizations, uh, you know, work towards building some of those systems? 
I suggest relying on insurance providers and brokers, depending on how their policies are set up. Those individuals very often have all the information about what those programs are, probably have flyers, template emails, things like that, that can easily be sent out that wouldn't create a lot of labor burden on those smaller organizations. There's also significant amount of information and data out there in blogs and websites that provide examples of how template emails or examples of how people can create programs for coming back online and providing information for staff. So there's some light touch options that can really be helpful for small teams. Yeah, and I I really appreciate your um, point about prepping, not just the logistics of, you know, where are we going to put desks and what's the cleaning procedure going to be and you know, all of those kinds of things, but also kind of that mental preparation or even just starting to, maybe it's not even preparation. Maybe it's just acknowledging that it's going to be weird and awkward for a little while. Um, That people aren't used to being together. And, you know, are you going to, is it okay to, you know, are you, how are you going to greet? Are you going to shake someone's hand? Are you going to bump their elbow? Are you going to, you know, how how do we do these meetings? Are are we all going to sit in the conference room like we used to? Or, um, you know, be a part and then uh, to try to think about how to manage a hybrid situation, I think is just um, much more challenging. I mean, you know, I, I managed that before the pandemic. I, I worked in an organization where I had um, remote staff, but it was so out of the ordinary that it was very hard to get folks who were at the central location to remember that, you know, a remote staff person was was involved in the meeting. So, when I, when I could have influence on the meeting set up, I would make sure that we used the video and had them up on screen so that people actually remembered they were there instead of just being on a conference call where they might, you know, they might as well not have been at the meeting. Right. Yes. And it, I, there's also that technology aspect when you bring that up of going back into the office, there's still going to be a distributed team structure and thinking through how systems will continue to support the work and the humans doing the work. So, uh, you know, many organizations, some maybe put hiring or onboarding on pause thinking, well, you know, well, let's just wait this out. And But, you know, as it's gone on longer, organizations have had to bring people on um, while they were working remotely. What, what have you seen work well in terms of, you know, hiring folks um, during this period and then, then that onboarding process. Interesting because the way that I approach hiring hasn't changed significantly than from before, except that certain phases of interview processes are over video right now rather than in person. I think the best thing any organization can do is really think through clearly what are the competencies that we're looking for in somebody, those skills and, and that level of experience. What are the things we must have? What are things are nice to have? And coming up with the a clear, readable, digestible job description that's fair and and isn't a wish list, but is more the actual job. And I really like a, a process that supports each candidate who is invited for various stages of interviews to get to know the culture of the organization. And, and investing time up front, I like to do phone interviews as a first round, not over video, but just over the phone, have a conversation without worrying about cameras and invest about an hour in those and really get to know candidates, not that we're hoping and you're looking at resumes, you understand that they've got the qualifications that we're looking for based on work experience, but let's get to know them 
as individuals and understand the stories that have helped them get to where they are. So I like that upfront investment. I think it always returns a better pool of candidates. And then investing in an equitable process where you have the same hiring panel, if there's a panel style interview and a second phase of interview, and making it really clear to candidates what they can expect and what the timeline is. So the, the biggest challenge of hiring right now is if you cannot meet somebody in person, a lot of people rely on that to make a final decision about a candidate. Are, are they going to work with our culture? They've got the right skill set and we think they're going to succeed in this role, but will they fit in with our team? And so I'm seeing some meet and greet style interviews getting added in where maybe it's a handful of staff members they're not interviewing, but it's let's get together and get to know each other, almost like a virtual coffee as a way of getting to know candidates and have a more that more social feel. So that's one thing that I'm seeing that's different. Otherwise, I'm just not seeing, I haven't seen a, a new trend, something that's brand new in hiring that really wasn't there before. Well, that's, I, I really appreciate that you say that actually it hasn't changed a huge amount and what's important hasn't necessarily changed, you know, go, going to what you've said at the very beginning, just taking the time to identify what the competencies are in the role, what's actually needed, what's a must have and what's a nice to have, um, right? Because I've certainly, you know, seen so many job descriptions where, um, you know, there's such a wish list that I'm like, even the superheroes and the Avengers couldn't do this job. I mean, what are they thinking? Um, so what are some of the steps that organizations can take and teams can take to to really identify what those competencies are? A lot of conversation and it, there are two, I guess there are two paths. If it's an existing role and someone is moving on and they're replacing a team member, taking a good look at the original job description did that work well? Was it realistic? Does it really cover what this person did and how can we adjust it to fit what we're really needing? Uh, thinking through what are the outcomes? What does success look like in three months, six months, a year in on that position? And I think that's what can really help identify those competencies. And I also think keeping that to six to eight competencies is efficient. If you try to go above and beyond that, we get back more to that Avenger style person who maybe doesn't exist, you know, of having everything on that list. So keeping it realistic and coming up with definitions for those competencies. There are existing definitions out there, but coming up with ones that are meaningful to the organization. What does being a clear communicator look like to us at this particular organization? What does being a superior relationship builder look like to us? And being able to convey that into questions that you ask the candidates is an important part too. Can you say more about how you link up those two things? Yes. So let's say the relationship building is a, a one of the competencies and you define what that means. Coming up with some questions that what's an ex asking for a specific story about how somebody built a relationship, maybe with someone that they were previously the organization was struggling with. Maybe it's a funder. Uh, maybe it's a relationship that needs to change. The person who was managing managing that relationship before was struggling with it or wasn't being very successful. So asking for examples of that and the outcomes and, and also trying to understand what somebody might do differently in a situation. But like scenario-based questions for understanding, really trying to get at where are they within this within that competency in terms of their expertise. And how have you seen organizations kind of be able to convey what their, their, what their culture is? Because, you know, too often I've... I've asked that question when I've been in the interview process and people are like, well, you'll know it when you see it. I'm like, well, that's not helpful. <laughs> Can you say a little bit more? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I like if there's not a, if the organization doesn't have an existing 
statement about their culture that might be in the handbook, I like to start with talking about them. What's your compensation philosophy? Because I think a lot of things trickle out from that. What's important to you as an organization? How do you define salaries? How do you determine what additional benefits you'll add into the package? And what amounts are you contributing to that? I think that can set a tone. Also talking through what are expectations around, let's say, things like dress code, if those things still exist. Some organizations still do have them or still have expectations for external facing events, making that super clear. That really can help you understand how casual might this organization be or how maybe stiff might this organization be and where might a person fit in along there. Um, I think asking when, when I want to understand the culture, what type of social events do you have? How do you get to know your new staff members when they come on board? Do you have celebrations for birthdays or work anniversaries? So trying to understand how they invest also in staff after they've come on board. Do they do 90-day check-ins? What are their performance evaluations like? All of that feeds into what the culture is. So I ask a ton of questions. That's great. And and about really specific things, right? So it's mm-hmm. not just kind of generally describe your culture to me, but describe this piece and this piece and this piece. And from all of it, I can really get a picture of what that adds up to. So yeah. Um, what would you recommend to clients in terms of successfully onboard, onboarding new hires, especially now, you know, again, with us being in, in this remote work environment? Depending on the size of the organization, figuring out what's the checklist, who will do what, what do we want our first interaction with our newest team member to look like after they've accepted the offer. And I would say communicating more than than you might if the person were going to be showing up in, in person and making sure they understand this is what your orientation looks like. By the end of week two, we expect you'll have had exposure to all of our systems. You may not know them exactly in and out yet, but you'll have gone through this checklist of, of learning to use these tools and making it super clear how what systems they need to have set up at home, how equipment will get to them, if they have any home office expenses, which I'm seeing many organizations give an extra reimbursement for that for internet and, and home costs. And having a plan, making sure the person's supervisor, if that's if that's relevant, is having personal check-ins with them, and that there's a process for that person getting to know the organization and their job and what is expected of them and really trying to incorporate them as much as possible. So it could be different depending on each organization, what how many systems and tools they have or how many staff they have on board. And it's a really important thing, I think, to have touch points with each staff member as well for any new person, not just through a staff meeting, but maybe just 15 minute quick coffees with people or a quick Slack video to say hi so that it, people get connected personally to the rest of the team. And I can imagine going through a process of trying to figure out what all those things are and creating that checklist could actually be useful for people who've been on staff for a while. Mm-hmm. Like, what are all the systems that we're using and how do they interact with each other? You know, how does each person see their role and how it connects? I, I could see that being a really fruitful conversation, you know, regardless of an onboarding process. That's a great point. And a lot of times organizations will have resources that they launch and maybe because there isn't a point person reminding staff that they have access to it, it's really when new staff come on board that they're reminded, oh, yes, we have this great shared Kindle library with 50 books in it that would help anybody who's interested in learning about various professional skills development. And I do think that's a great idea. If the organization's to, for it's a great benefit rather for staff, existing staff to see those resources. Um, if the organization's big enough, there might be an opportunity for 
individual staff members to be the champion of certain pieces. You know, there's a maybe a tools person and uh, maybe this is how we do our staff meetings. Let me introduce you to that. And, you know, having people be the, the go-to person and having that list be shared with the original, with the staff member, excuse me, joining the team. Here's who to go to for what and um, to get it a really good orientation to the organization. Yeah, I love the idea of splitting it up and having it not be just a siloed experience. So not only, you know, distributes the process of either putting that together or implementing it, but it also, with each person that's that champion, the the new person get you know starts to build a relationship with them as well. Yeah, I think for individual staff members who have the opportunity to take the lead on things like that too, it's a an investment opportunity for them as well. They get to show up their knowledge of the organization and, and take the lead on something. So it's a great, I think, a retention opportunity as well. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking, and more at gracesocialsector.com resources. We're back on Mission Impact. So on each episode, I like to play a game by asking one random icebreaker question. And since we mentioned the Avengers, um, if you could have any superpower, what would you choose and why? This is a really tough one. <laughs> I think I would choose the power of invisibility. I really like to observe and I like the idea of being able to observe without being noticed and, and being able to you know use that for good. Maybe interject if I need to or take information back to somebody else, report it. I don't know, but I like that idea. And also being able to disappear quickly if needed. I love it. I love it. Yeah, I've often thought, oh, I'd love to have been a fly on the wall in that meeting to see what really happened mm-hmm. uh, versus mm-hmm. the report out afterwards. So that's awesome. So what are you excited about? What's, what's up next for you? What's emerging in your work? Got a couple of really fun projects coming up. One is it's fun because it's collaborating with a friend who, with her firm, um, I'm going to support a project on hiring a new team member for one of their nonprofit clients. And so just getting to know their process and bringing, merging our processes and plus getting to work together. I'm excited about that. For one of my longer term clients, we're working on job trajectories. They've been growing as an organization and haven't had an exact map. You know, how do you grow at this organization? What does it take to get a promotion? What does that look like? So we're working on those trajectories and salary bands and making that all transparent within the organization, a growth path. And then the other is expanding voluntary benefits for one of my clients and thinking about what are the host of things that staff might like to have access to? It's not something the organization's necessarily paying for, but they'll pay for the administration of those benefits. And we often have life insurance that you can add on to, accident things related to health. But there are also financial planning types of services, health and wellness, and even things like pet insurance to make available to your people if you're maybe getting a better deal because you're working with one provider. So I'm excited about that to expand those offerings. That's awesome. I love the idea of the the, the growth trajectory because I think so often in the sector, um, certainly if I look back at my career, most of the ways in which I grew, I ended up always having to hop to a new organization. Uh, and, and there wasn't a clear path 
within the organization to to you know build on what I already had had done and, and build on the work. So that's that's really cool to start being a little more intentional about that. I think so too. And not everybody wants to move up and be a supervisor for other people. They maybe are expanding their skills and can take on more advanced work as they grow, but maybe that's not for them. And if it's possible to create those types of positions, make that clear, this can exist and that's what it looks like. Um, and that might impact pay scale, I'm not sure, but it could, but just making that super clear to staff, I think a lot of times people might not ask those questions. Do I have to be promoted and become a supervisor? And maybe organizations end up losing great folks because they haven't had that conversation. Right. I mean, some people, they, they don't necessarily want to move up in, in that kind of moving to a supervisory role. They really just want to go deeper and deeper into what they're, what they're doing as an individual contributor. So that's a great point. Well, thank you so much. It's been great having this conversation. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you inviting me. It's been fun. All right. I appreciated how Bobby described her process for hiring and how in many ways it has not actually changed a lot even in the past year, beyond final interviews being via video instead of in person. Her process starts with defining the competencies needed for the role, and she nudges organizations to not create that wish list job description that essentially describes a superhuman. That first step of getting clear about what is actually really essential with the job and this could include questioning whether the qualifications you've always required in the past are really needed. Does the person really need a college degree to do the job or a master's? What is essential and what is nice to have? And then how are you being consistent across interviews to aim for a more equitable process? I thank you for listening to this episode. I really appreciate the time you spend with me and my guests. And you can find the links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at missionimpactpodcast.com slash show notes. I'd like to thank Nora Strauss-Riggs for their support in editing and production, as well as April Kister of 100 Ninjas for her production support. And I'd like to hear from you. Take a minute to give me some feedback or ask a question at missionimpactpodcast.com slash feedback. Until next time. Thank you.